Know where your story is going before you write the first page. Uh, making it up as you go works for some writers. It certainly doesn't work for us. Um, but I would always advise somebody to know the basic shape of your narrative. That was Michael Linval sharing his advice to new authors. Stay tuned to hear more about Michael's journey as a writer here on Pages and Voices. I'm your host, Meg Bell. We will be right back after the intro. Welcome to Pages and Voices, the local author podcast, sponsored by the Allen County Public Library. This podcast is dedicated to featuring the works of talented authors within our community. Today's local author guest is Michael Linval. His latest book, co-authored with his daughter Madeline, is Ashes to Ashes, a Ludington Vanderburg mystery. I'm going to tell you a little about the book now. In a Manhattan brownstone that has long served as a manse for him and his predecessors, the Reverend Seth Ludington discovers the bones of an infant, 49 years dead. With his sidekick, the acid-tongued Harriet Vanderburg, Ludington struggles to resolve the mystery of the bones long hidden in the ash pit of his home while trying to outrun a dark secret from his past. The answers he discovers sets Ludington onto an ominous path from which he cannot return, forcing him to explore haunting questions of forgiveness and time. And now, a little about our authors. M.M. Lynn Vall is a father-daughter writing duo. Madeline Lynn Vall Radman is a television writer and producer specializing in true crime. Michael Lynn Vall is a published author of three volumes of Accessible Theology and two novels, The Good News from North Haven and Leaving North Haven. The former was on a New York Times bestseller list. He is the Senior Minister Emeritus of the Brick Presbyterian Church of Manhattan. Michael and his wife Terry make their home on the shores of Lake Michigan near Pentwater in the summer months and down south in Fort Wayne in the winter. Madeline, her husband Tom, and their two children, Shay and Shepard, live in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And due to the fact that Madeline lives in Maryland, a little bit of a tongue twister there, she is not able to be here today. Michael, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Meg. And now you're going to read a small portion of um, the book from chapter two, kind of give us a backstory for what unfolds in the book. As uh, Meg indicated, the, the Reverend Seth Ludington and his wife have uh, bought a, a brownstone in the Yorkville neighborhood of Manhattan. And this brownstone has long served as the home of pastors of the Old Stone Presbyterian Church. And uh, things a mess that hasn't been kept up. And they set out to renovate this lovely hundred-year-old brownstone. And one of the one of the jobs that falls to our protagonist, Seth Ludington, is cleaning out the ash pit. Now, not everybody knows what an ash pit is. Uh, many older houses had a opening in the hearth of the fireplace. And after you had a fire in your fireplace and created a bunch of ash. Instead of cleaning it out through the opening of the fireplace, you swept it down this hole, and it went into um, a container, a huge container in the basement called an ash pit. And over the years, ashes accumulated. So in this renovating process, the Reverend Seth Ludington is tasked with cleaning out the ash pit. And this is a bit from that story and what happens when he cleans it out. The door of the ash pit, that is, was low. The bottom of its opening, some two feet above the cellar floor. Crouching for the work would be uncomfortable, so he slid one of the book boxes in place and sat down. He put on the leather work gloves that Fiona had bought him last week 
and took the fireplace shovel in hand. The ashes formed a solid wall in front of the opening. They were not soft and dry, as he had expected, but dampish and semi-solid, pale in texture, uh, the texture of fine soil. Rain down the chimney when the damper was left open had doubtless seeped through the opening in the fireplace floor and slightly moistened the contents over the years. Sealed up as they were, they had never quite dried out. Ludington plunged his little shovel into the wall of ash and began the slow, messy process of loading ages of fine old fires into the garbage can. He thought to himself of the night to come, the Chateau Neuf with Fiona, it would be well worth the effort, this cleaning job. With the fifth shovelful, Ludington discovered that ashes were not the only contents in the ash pit. And it was not totally full, but full only to the top of the clean-out door. As he emptied the fifth shovel into the garbage can, he saw a tiny box labeled Sirts Peppermint Breath Mints. It fell into the bottom of his shovel. He retrieved it, examined it. He had never seen one quite like it before. It looked very old. A few shovels later, he encountered a small glass bottle in the shape he vaguely remembered, as that in which Bayer aspirin was sold in the days before that remedy was eclipsed by acetaminophen and NYSADS. He rubbed it clean. Indeed, its label read Bayer aspirin. Clearly, the fireplace had been used over the years as a handy living room trash basket and incinerator. The next find in the ash pit dig was pipe tobacco tin, Prince Albert, Victoria's German husband, still discernible, standing ramrod straight and decked out in his tails. Digging deeper below the tobacco tin's layer of ash, he came upon bits of newspaper, probably remnants of less than successful kindling efforts. One remnant was the corner of a page of the New York Times. He could easily make out the date Friday, December 17, 1970. A bit more ash excavation and Ludington next came upon his largest find so far, a nearly complete front page of a Life magazine. It showed a full-page black-and-white photo, a paparazzi snapshot, not posed. It was of Rose Kennedy in an evening gown and a slender young Ted in a tuxedo a step behind his mother. The date was clearly legible, July 17, 1970. That was when the Kennedy clan was still on their popular ascendancy, to, despite Ted's missteps. As he shook the ashes off, the image reminded Ludington of how disconnected the appearance of a perfect, pretty family could be from the complicated reality. Ludington was now becoming more of a curious archaeologist than a mere ash pit cleaner. He fetched a flashlight from the kitchen to see better into the dark pit he dug carefully, intrigued by what bits of the manse's history he might unearth. Just under where the Life magazine cover had lay, he shoveled into something hard, something that was neither ash nor paper. Shining the flashlight closer, he could see that what his shovel had stuck was white, bone white and thin. Remembering his dig days in Israel, he rushed back into the kitchen and found a teaspoon and a stiff little one-inch paintbrush. He 
He spooned ash away delicately, using the paintbrush to sweep away ashes from what was looking more and more like a set of bones, doubtless those of an immense New York City rat or perhaps an unfortunate squirrel that had somehow fallen uh, first into the fireplace and then through the opening in his floor down into the ash pit. Luddington had never been squeamish. In fact, he found himself now growing intrigued. As he spooned and brushed away ash, the multiple bones reclining in the bed of ash soon shaped themselves into what was clearly a skeleton. A few brush strokes at one end of the stretch of bones dispo- uh, disclosed a, a tiny skull. Ludington jerked back. He dropped the paintbrush and the spoon to the floor, and he whispered, Oh, my God. Those words were no trespass of the third commandment. They were an earnest prayer. The bones that lay in the ash pit were in the general form of a disconnected and scattered skeleton. They were small and delicate, almost bird-like, but obviously human. You guys are going to have to go pick up the book to get the rest of the story. I know how it ends. I read it. I wanted to talk a little bit first about your um, trajectory from writing nonfiction theology to contemporary fiction to mystery fiction. How did that play out? Uh, Meg, all my life I've uh, been enthralled with mystery fiction. I've read it recreationally for a long time. For a long time I felt guilty about it, thinking I was reading fluff. Why am I reading such light stuff when I should be reading theology? And finally, it occurred to me um, that mystery fiction often goes very deep. Um, And it's often a fiction in general, and mystery fiction in particular, is often a way to do some truth-telling and some revelatory writing uh, in the guise of fiction. Um, The the line of distinction that's often drawn between fiction and nonfiction is pretty fuzzy. Um, a lot of nonfiction has a lot of fiction in it, and a lot mm. of fiction in it has a lot of truth in it. Yeah. It's a very complicated relationship. So this combination of my affection for uh, the mystery genre and my sense of calling to do something substantial in retirement led me to try my hand at this genre I'd always loved. So what, um, what my daughter and I ultimately set out to do is write in a very popular genre, the classic mystery uh, uh, novel, but bring readers deep into some, um, some profound issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, this first book explores issues of um, uh, self-reproach, guilt, the toxicity of secrets, the possibility of confession, and even forgiveness. Um, everybody in, in the book seems to have a past, um, yeah. <laughs> including the protagonist. Uh-huh. And one of the threads in the book is uh, how you unravel a past and how you reconcile yourself to things in your history. And you were able to work some of the theology into the book because of his everyday profession when he's not yeah. sleuthing. Yeah, Seth, our protagonist, is the, is the minister of a struggling little uh, congregation in the Yorkville neighborhood of Manhattan. Uh, Yorkville is the uh, the poor cousin to the Upper East Side, and his little church, which we named Old Stone, which doesn't really exist, right? It's... Doesn't really exist. No, if you went there, you'd find a parking lot. Anyway, he's serving the struggling little congregation. It's kind of a complicated story how he ended up there. Uh, that, that's who he is, and uh, in in the book, of course, his sidekick becomes the volunteer church secretary who's this um, 
She's a 80-year-old, kind of acid-tongued, retired secretary, did all her, conducted all of her career on Wall Street, worked for very powerful men, mm-hmm. and soon learned how to get around very powerful men. <laughs> yes. And just happens to leave her intercom on. Yes, right. <laughs> you have read this book. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. So how long did you, how long was this particular story brewing for you? Had you been thinking about this a while? Oh, yeah. The whole idea of writing mystery fiction has been in my head for a while. And I was, I was kind of fishing around for some plot ideas. And my wife and I moved to uh, Fort Wayne five years ago. We bought an old wreck of a house in the West Central neighborhood mm-hmm. and set out to restore it. And one of the jobs that fell to me was cleaning out the ash pit. Oh, it had an ash pit. Oh, that's, yeah. cool. that's fascinating. And uh, no bones in our ash pit. But <laughs> what I discovered boring. in doing it, it it's, it's kind of like an archaeological dig. Yeah. In other words, the deeper you go down in the mm-hmm. pile of ashes, the older the stuff is. Yeah. And so when Seth finds what he finds, I'm not going to give it away in the ash mm-hmm. pit, he can date exactly when it was put there. Um, because it's like archaeologists. You know, archaeology, when, when, you, when you dig an archaeological site, the deeper you go down in the, the tell, the older the stuff gets. Yeah, yeah. I know it's fascinating to me how that stuff builds on itself. Yeah. The earth builds on itself, and it buries those things. I want to know if there are people out there who have actually found things in their ash pit while they've been cleaning it out based on reading this story. I'm like, well, I wonder if... I found stuff in our ash pit. Nothing nothing as, as uh, ominous as what Seth finds. But old, I found some old bottles, some yeah. chunks of newspaper. Uh-huh. Uh, they didn't get burned up. And the, the ashes in the ash pit were as I described them. They were, they were not dry. They were a little wet and sticky. Mm-hmm. It was a mess. Oh, I'm yeah. sure. I'm yeah. sure it was everywhere before you got it all cleaned up. <laughs> anyway, that was, the, that was the seed for the, the, the basic plot conceit. When did you decide you wanted to write this story with your daughter, or did she approach you? Yeah, this is a good story. Uh, this is, we have two daughters. This is our okay. older daughter, Madeline, who is a uh, professional true crime writer-producer. Which is also fascinating. Yeah, and she uh, and her husband and their two kids live in the D.C. area. She mostly does stuff for A&E. When I got this idea, I was flying it by her, and she had just at that point finished a series on um, a series of murders in California that were solved by DNA. And uh, as I unraveled this plot idea to her, she had such fabulous thoughts about plot development that I said, I'm going to incorporate all this stuff. And then she, she, was, she was driving home from New York down to Washington on the, on the New Jersey Turnpike, and she got more ideas. And she called me on the phone from the car, was flying these ideas by me. And I said, you know, this is going to be a better book if we co-write it, because she has incredible gifts in terms of plot development Mm -hmm. and spacing what she calls and what the the genre calls reveals. When in the point of the narrative you tell people things and when you hold things back. Sure. She's really good at that. I'm good at writing dialogue and character development and injecting some of the deeper themes. That so, was, I was curious who did what for the book, so that sort of answers that question. So you did most of the dialogue then? Well, the way we do it is we sit down together in person. The first book and our second book, which is about to come out, uh, and pound out a, a basic uh, plot conceit, and then we do an outline, and then I uh, expand the outline. Uh, she's a busy mother, and she's working full-time. I got more time than she does. And I pound out an outline, send it to her. She cuts it up, sends it back to me, changes it. 
and then we do a new outline, and then I'll sit down and start uh, pounding out a couple chapters. And then I'll send the chapters to her, and she um, says, no, this should be later. Yeah, this, this shouldn't happen until chapter eight. And she, she uh, changes sequence a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll say, you know, Dad, don't tell them that yet. Okay. Uh, so she'll hold things back. But I do most of the actual uh, writing, and I'm good at dialogue, and I love to create characters. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my end of the process. Have you had any creative differences with her? Yes. Has it been Not big ones. Um, in the first book, I don't want to give too much away, but one of the ethical themes has to do with all the complex questions around abortion. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're pretty much on the same page regarding they're both, we're both more or less pro-choice. But I'm more nuanced in my perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we had to pound out some differences there. Were there any scenes that were difficult to write? I don't know if there are any scenes that were difficult to write. You, you get to the point when you're writing anything, you're not quite sure what ought to happen next. Um, yes. Although we yeah. work from a very uh, thorough outline. Mystery fiction uh, is tightly written. In other words, readers expect um, very tight consistency in the narrative. Uh, you can't change things on them. Uh, you've, you, it's it's got to fit together and flow very, um, it, it, it is a prescribed genre. So we work from a very tight outline. Uh, okay. So you know, we, yeah. we, we pretty much know what's going to happen next. But sometimes Madeline say, nah, let's hold back on that a little while. And also, I just have to add, my children are 12 and 9, but I'm always looking for ways to spend time with them. And so this must have been a wonderful way to spend time with your daughter. Oh, your it's adult. a gift. Yeah. yeah. It has been fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I can yeah. imagine that. And you want to keep, you know, you want to keep keep going. And I see that you have. You have your next book with you. So we're going to get to that in a minute. So how long did it take you to complete Ashes to Ashes? About a year from when we first sat down and pounded out the plot to when we um, sent the uh, manuscript into our publisher. So was that, uh, were you consistently working on it for that year, like daily? Or was- Pretty much. I um, mean, my process, we have, a, we have an old house in West Central, and I have a little room at the south end of the house I call my scriptorium. <laughs> and I retreat to my scriptorium and write, and I'll usually pound out a chapter or two and send them to Madeline in D.C., and then she sends them back to me. But I usually write you know, four or five days a week. And all of my life, Meg, going to work, and I see this as work. Um, yeah. It's good work. Mm-hmm. It's work I love. But all of my life, going to work meant putting on a tie. So in spite of the fact that nobody can see me in my scriptorium, I always put on a tie when I go in there. <laughs> it's sort of like a signal to your brain. It's a brain. signal to my brain. Yeah, yeah, right. That this is a job. It's fun, but it's a job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if I was in my bathrobe, I, I, yeah, I probably would just I could start never s- write in my bathrobe. Start no. surfing the internet or something right. and not even getting anything done. I'm going to I'm gonna uh, write that tip down for myself. Not wear a tie, but <laughs> just a signal to the brain when I'm at home that it's time to do something. I write, I write as well. Oh, I don't, do you? I don't yeah. write um, anything like this. I write poetry, so, but still. Wonderful. Yeah. And you've got to Well, come. Seth aspires to be a poet. Yes. You, yeah. That's yeah. right. He's very private about it. He doesn't like to share his poetry. I know. Well, it's kind of like a journal sometimes, so, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I noted a couple of things that I enjoyed learning about. I enjoyed learning about the New York City brownstones because those are sort of storied and, you know, mm-hmm. very historic. And I would love to see inside one in person. 
I was very excited to find a character named Brooks because that's my son's name. Oh, really? It yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed the historical events that were mentioned, the 1968 riots and the Students for the Democratic Society and then Tom Brokaw. I actually tried – did he get beat up? I, they, you he guys, did. He did in the Chicago riots, yeah. Okay. I yeah. tried to find it online and I I'm not sure beat up is where he got roughed up. Roughed up. By the cops, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, okay. one, one of the things we wanted to do with New York, and we lived in New York for 17 years and we loved it, but New York uh, has changed dramatically since the 70s. So one of the things we wanted to do with the book is to set 1970s New York alongside um, 2019 New York. Okay. And uh, kind of show readers how the city has altered in those, um, what, 50 years. Mm-hmm. So it... Has it evolved in a unkind way? No, mostly in a good way. In a good way. Uh, the '70s were a tough time in New York. Okay. I mean, uh, people people were fleeing to the suburbs en masse. Um, they were giving away apartments on Park Avenue. It was a, it was a, mess, a lot of crime. Um, it was a rough time. Mm-hmm. And the New York, um, it's, it's, it's kind of a heartening thing. The New York of, of of today, in spite of all the COVID stuff that shook New York so hard is a much more livable place than it was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I've been once, and it was back when I was in college. I went with a group of friends, and we went on New Year's Eve, much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> you went to Times Square? We did. Oh, yeah. We did, and we saw the ball. Yeah. It was 2000 going into 2001, and I regret, I regrettably, I did not get to see the World Trade Center. Um, I saw the Empire State Building. But anyways, yeah, we were down in Times Square, and we were like, it was 10 o'clock at night. And we were like all freezing, and we were so far back from that ball, we got back on the train and went back to New Jersey. <laughs> <What> <laughs> we didn't One th- of the things I enjoy when I read, and I'm, I'm an inveterate reader, I enjoy being escorted to interesting places in a book. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy books um, that bring me somewhere I've not been, or maybe somewhere I've been, but I want to learn more about. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we're trying to do, my daughter and I, with these books, is bring our readers to an exotic locale. Mm-hmm. And for the vast majority of readers, New York City is an exotic locale. It is, yeah. Uh, it's it's very different uh, kind of place from where most of us live. The second book brings readers uh, to a place called Orkney. Um, mm-hmm. Orkney is a cluster of islands between uh, Scotland and Norway. Yeah, and it's a, sure. it's a, it's a very exotic place. We lived there for a while. Oh, um, you did. It's it's a, a remarkably unusual place. So I I hope readers enjoy a trip to Orkney in the second book. Well, I enjoyed the trip to New York City, so I'm sure I'll enjoy the trip to Orkney as well. Two d- totally different things. Um, so. Is there a historian? Are you a historian? Is there a historian in the family? Because there did seem to be, like, I was seeing a strong genealogical thread. I trained as a historian. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was kind of picking up on that. So. so. And I love history. I read a lot of history. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things we inevitably inject into the book is my interest in history. Okay. Um, do you, Have you visited the... I assume you've been up there to the genealogical center upstairs. I have. Yeah, yeah. that's fascinating in there. That's right around the corner from like my office, so uh-huh. I have to be careful to not go get lost in the center, <laughs> looking at things. It's very easy. So you kind of touched on it, but what's next for M. M. Lindvall? M. M. Lindvall. Um, at the end of the well, I'm not going to tell you how the first book ends. You know how the first book yes, ends. I it do. ends with a, a major question hanging over uh, our protagonist, Seth Ludington. But in the second book, suffice it to say that he and his wife, his wonderful wife Fiona, 
who is a Scot and uh, grew up in Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. But uh, her grandmother um, is a native Orcadian. And our protagonist, Seth Ludington, gets schnookered into leading one of these dreadful tour groups um, of church members uh, to Scotland. And they go to all the predictable places. Um, Early in the book, they go to Edinburgh, they go to Iona, uh, they go to um, the Highlands, and then they go to Orkney. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope the readers will enjoy being escorted into Orkney. So when does this one come out? Is it out now? Next week. Next week. Yep. Okay. All right. We're planning a launch party here in Fort Wayne on the 5th of November. Okay. So are you writing now? So you've just finished Earth to Earth. Are you, well, you have it finished. It's getting ready to come out. Are you writing anything currently? Yes. Madeline and I are halfway through the third book in the series. Okay. Which uh, you can probably guess the title of, Dust to Dust. Those phrases, by the way, are drawn from uh, a prayer from the, um, the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. It's what the minister, the priest, says when ashes or the body are lowered into the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth. And so we borrowed those three phrases, um, not particularly original, I guess, but we borrowed those three phrases for titles. So we're halfway through book three, Dust to Dust, which is slated for release next summer. Okay. And this book is its another classic uh, mystery. And in this book, um, it, it's set mostly in New York and Long Island. Um, um, Long Island is another exotic, interesting place. We lived there for a while. And this book is going to explore um, the rise of anti-Semitism in uh, our current time and the history, the complicated history of the relationship between uh, Judaism and Christianity. Hmm. Sort of prescient. Yeah, Sorry, well, yeah. I've been doing a lot of research. I've, I've um, leaned on the, the local rabbi here in Fort Wayne, who's been a wonderful help, and mm-hmm. trying to understand some of the dynamics of anti-Semitism. Mm. Okay. So... Will there be three books in the series then? Is oh, we're going to keep going, Meg. Keep yeah. going. Okay. We're already right. poking around with ideas for book four. All right. I can't. We can't wait. This is going to be fun. Um, so what's the most difficult part of the writing process for you? Editing, uh, in two senses. Um, first of all, sometimes editing means uh, taking things out that you have written. Hmm. And I would say, that's like murdering your children. I know, it's It's hard. really hard. Oh, Even though it has to go, you think it's so brilliant. It's, <laughs> it's so, so hard, but it doesn't belong. <laughs> and it's know. so hard to get rid of it. And frankly, copy editing at the end, even though our, our, um, our publisher has, has good copy editing staff, uh, there's no substitute for the author's eye. Um, okay. They're going through a manuscript. Just finished going through the manuscript for the second book and finding a few more little edits that needed to be done. Can you tell us what copy editing is? Copy editing is um, spelling mistakes, um, commas out of place, uh, quotation marks that should or shouldn't be there. Okay. Um, sometimes a wrong, an errant word, mm-hmm. run together words, margins that are wrong, all that kind of little stuff. Yeah. Mm. Doesn't sound very 
very much fun. No, it's laborious. Yes. Fortunately, Madeline is really good at it. Some people are. Yeah. yeah. I'm not. It's not my, uh, uh, my gift, but it's uh, something she's good at. Okay. So between the two of us, we're pretty good copy editors. So what's the most enjoyable part of writing for you? Making stuff up, um, making mm-hmm. characters up, making uh, events up, mm-hmm. exploring history and places. Like I said, we really like to set our books in places where our readers might enjoy going. Mm-hmm. So poking around all the research I did in Orkney uh, for the second book, even though we lived there for a while, uh, I didn't know a lot of the history. Yeah. That has been fun. Mm-hmm. You should set one in the Caribbean. Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's right. Actually, Seth's parents, who are, uh, who are, who are filthy wealthy, Yes. Um, have three homes, one of which is in the Caribbean. Right. That's yeah. right. They yeah. do. So it could happen. It's it in the Bahamas. Happen. So, yeah, it could happen. <laughs> I'm always willing to go there in my mind or in person. We're thinking of uh, the fourth book being set in uh, northwest Michigan, oh. which is a place we know and love. Yeah, um, absolutely. But we don't know yet. Okay. All right. Time will tell. Is there anything or any place that inspires you to write? Orkney. Mm-hmm. Um and in New York, frankly, you know, I'm not a native New Yorker. I grew up in northern Michigan, and Terry is a native Fort Wayner. Uh, and we moved to New York and felt like what we were, a couple of Midwesterners <laughs> in the big city. But we came to just love it. Mm-hmm. We loved living there. We loved the kind of people we got to deal with, mostly. Um, we loved the whole experience of apartment living and living on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And so that was an inspiration for the first book. Hmm. You read it, you know that a lot of action unfolds in restaurants Mm -hmm. because restaurants are such a big hunk of life in New York. Yeah. Yeah. They say New Yorkers never cook. They always eat out. Um, (laughs) So we set a lot of stuff in restaurants, most of which are real restaurants. Yes, I I did read that too, so... I'd like to, the one place that they kept getting, was it Italian food? Evios? Oh, the Lex restaurant. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, man, I want to I want to go eat there myself. This sounds delicious. It's a fabulous little joint. Hidden away, nobody knows about it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, even better. Yeah. So what advice would you give first-time writers? Start, start with something you know. In other words, start with a locale you know. Imagine characters that are drawn from people you know, because you, as a first-time writer, have expertise. There are things you know about. There are things you understand about place and people and narrative. Have a story in mind pretty much. Now, this is a personal opinion. Not every writer would agree. But know where your story is going before you write the first page. Uh, Making it up as you go works for some writers. It certainly doesn't work for us. Um, But I would always advise somebody to know the basic shape of your narrative. I like to read what I call page turners, Mm -hmm. um, books that that ask you to keep reading, uh, that you don't have to uh, make yourself read. So I like, we like to write in such a way that um, the readers are drawn into the story, captured by it, don't want to put the book down, mm-hmm. yeah, miss sleep, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So on this particular book, did you have to find a publisher for this one? Uh, our agent did. Uh, okay, so you did have an agent. We do have an agent. We're, we're very fortunate. We have a wonderful agent, uh, a guy named Joe Veltri, who is actually the uh, head of books for Gersh, 
So he's a he's a he's a a wonderful agent to get. And he um, ended we ended we ended up with this little publisher, uh, an independent publisher called LBB, who only publishes mystery fiction. That's all they publish. Okay. Um, different genres of mystery fiction: historical fiction, contemporary fiction, hard boiled, um, cozies, all the different genres uh, in mm-hmm. the in the mystery um, in the mystery spectrum. And it's run by three women out of Baltimore, and they know the mystery genre really well. Okay. Um, so they are enormously helpful. Did you have to submit part of the story to them? Did you have to actively yeah. look? Yeah, we submitted the whole book. Yeah, okay. The book was done uh, when we got it to our agent, the first book, and he shopped it around, and we ultimately ended up with LBB. Okay. All right. And did they, so they would, they did all the cover art or did you guys have some no. creative license there? No, we actually, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister is a graphic artist here in Fort Wayne. Her name is Laura Eckstein. Okay. And I said, uh, I, I really wanted, we wanted a lot of input on cover art. And usually with publishers, you just, you don't get much input with the cover art. They do it and tell you what it's going to be. But we wanted input. So we worked with Laura and she came up with our cover art. Okay. Is it the same for the next book? Did yep. she do that yep. too? Okay. Laura Eckstein, Fort Wayne. All right. So the length of time that you submitted this to an agent, to a publisher, to the time that you finally had it in this format and ready for the shelf, what was that time frame? Oh, my goodness. A year and a half. To, yeah. That was lengthy. I mean, we, I, we started writing this book in, um, ooh, let me think, in 2019. It's set in 2019. Um, and we finished up in 20, and it was released in the winter of 22. I'm going to move on to some fun questions now. Okay. I like fun questions, Meg. <laughs> okay. So how old were you when you wrote your first story? Your I, very first I saw story. that. I think about 35. Oh. Now, so. I've written lots. I mean, ministers write all the time. Um, yes, they do. Yeah, yeah, it's just part of our life. But fiction is another matter. And the first fiction I wrote was when I was about 35. Okay. Do you remember what the story was? Do you have yeah. it? Yeah. It's published. Um, okay. okay. Yeah. Um, without my daughter, just me alone, um, I published two novels. Um, right. Uh, the Good News from North Haven and Leaving North Haven. And they're episodic novels, both of them, with discrete chapters. Each one kind of a short story. Mm-hmm. And the first of that stuff was written when I was about 30, I don't know, 35, 36, 37. So the first story, fiction stories you wrote actually got published. Yes. That's impressive. But I like you said, as you said, you write had all the time as a minister. Yeah. So it's like you, you, know, you were practiced at it. If this book became a movie, who would star in it? You know, I thought and thought about that, and I originally thought that the guy I would I would want is is Tom Thomas Gibson. Oh Tom, yeah, sure. Thomas Gibson played Greg in Dharma and Greg. He did. But yeah. then I googled him the other day. He's too old. He's sixty-one. <laughs> I know. We remember him as they were when they yeah, were right. on the shows. Yeah, right. Remember when he's Dharma and Greg? Yeah. But now right. he's old. So then I thought probably um, Austin Butler. Yeah. Austin Elvis. Butler played. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Not a yes. fan. Elvis Presley in the latest movie. And he's probably too young. But they're not going to make the movie for a few years, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, he might. it might work, yeah. 
Okay, if you could spend the day with a writer, living or dead, who would it be? I think I, I'm two possibilities. One would be Mark Twain, a Mark Twain fan. Mm-hmm. And the other would be a woman named Josephine Tay. And uh, her book, that book is mentioned in yeah, this book. Yeah. Josephine Tay uh, was one of the, um, one of the women who uh, churned out uh, English mysteries in the 20s and 30s into the 40s. Okay. And Agatha Christie, of course, is by far the most famous of that crew. Mm-hmm. But Josephine Tay is maybe the most interesting of the crew. Um, she only wrote, I think, four or five novels. But a few of them are, to my mind, among the best mysteries ever written. I wondered. I actually had that on a note. But I was like, well, I don't know. I was going to ask, if, was there a reason you mentioned that particular book by Josephine Tay? And obviously. Yeah. She, um, she was an interesting. She was a strange lady. Um, but uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to have dinner with her. Yeah. And spend a day with her. Sure. Um, if you could invite three people to dinner, who would you invite? Oh, man. I, I'm not going to go with mystery writers. I'm going to go with, um, I assume you mean by that they got to be living. I can't invite dead people to dinner. You can invite dead people to dinner. Okay, sure. well, if go they're ahead. live people, okay, they would be um, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times. Okay. Um, Ross Douthat, who's also a columnist, usually writes for the Times. And uh, Marilyn Robinson. Uh, Marilyn Robinson is a novelist and essayist, uh, teaches writing at the University of Iowa. I met her a number of years. I actually did have dinner with her. Um, okay. Yeah. But there were too many people at the table, so we couldn't talk. Oh, uh, that's a bummer. <laughs> How did that play? How did you manage to be at a table with Marilyn Robinson? We, when we were in New York, we invited her to, um, to do a program. At, at the congregation I served there. And she is an absolutely remarkable woman. The program didn't work very well. Um, she has a, a, a very soft voice. The place was full. People couldn't hear her. Um, it wasn't a stunning success. But we went out to dinner afterwards. And dinner was a stunning success. Even uh-huh. though, yeah. Well, that's fascinating. So you probably met some really interesting people, um, being the minister at the church in Manhattan. So who's the most fascinating person you've gotten to meet because of your work? Yeah, man, I don't know if I can easily answer that question. That one I sort of threw in there. I wasn't yeah. more planning on that one, but it just came to me. Well, Katie Couric. Um, who? Yeah. Uh, offered the who, review. Who kindly blurbed the book, um, became a friend when we lived in New York. And um, even though uh, she and her husband moved downtown and we kind of lost track, we've kept in contact over the years. Uh-huh. And she's certainly an interesting person. Oh, she's got some, she's just interviewed some incredible people. She's got right, she's a, a masterful interviewer. Mm-hmm. She's really, I think I'd be afraid to be interviewed by Katie Couric. I'm not sure I'd have a good answer for any of great I'd questions. I'd be very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be yeah, soon, I'd sooner be foolish. interviewed by you, Meg, not Katie Couric. <laughs> the guys, yeah. <laughs> the whole time. Um, so if fans want to reach you, how can they reach M.M. Linval or Michael Linval? We have, um, we have a website, and believe it or not, we got, the, uh, we got an incredible address. It's mmlinval.com. <laughs> well, that's easy. Yep. And uh, both Madeline and I are active on social media. 
Um, I've got a couple of handles on Facebook, Michael Linval and M.M. Linval. We have two different things. And on Instagram, I think it's Michael Linval and M.M. Linval. Okay. All right. So is there anything that I missed today, anything that you want to mention while uh, we're here? Know. You think we covered it all? I think we covered it all, Meg. Okay. Thank all you. right. It's been a pleasure. It's been so nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on uh, the podcast. I look forward to seeing you in the future around the library. Thank you much. Yeah. I'm Meg Bell, your host of the ACPL Local Author Podcast, brought to you by the Allen County Public Library. If you enjoyed this podcast, please show your support by liking, subscribing, and sharing it with your friends and family. Your support means everything to us.